listening to Pythagoras' Trousers. Hello and welcome to this month's Pythagorean Astronomy with me, Chris North. At the end of September 2022, one of the big things in the news, uh, not just the astronomy news, but a lot of the other news bulletins, was the uh, flying of a spacecraft, uh, the DART mission, or part of the DART mission, uh, into an asteroid, which sounds a little careless, but actually it was all planned. Uh, the DART mission uh, was designed to uh, test various things about what happens when you, unsurprisingly, fly a spacecraft into an asteroid. Um, it might sound like a bit of a ridiculous thing to try and do. The asteroid is quite a lot bigger than the spacecraft. What difference can a spacecraft possibly make? Well, to find out uh, what the point of this mission was and uh, what observations have been taken and by whom, because there were some some surprising groups uh, involved there, I'm joined by three people uh, here in Cardiff. So I'm joined by uh, Kai Stoddard-Jones, who's a PhD student here at Cardiff University, Helen Usher, is a PhD student at the Open University, uh, but physically based here uh, in South Wales. Uh, and Professor Paul Roche, uh, who's uh, one of my colleagues here in Cardiff University, uh, who is uh, leading one of the projects involved uh, that we'll talk about later. So let's start off. Uh, Kai, I'm going to come to you first. Um, so this was a NASA mission uh, with international involvement from other countries and so on. Mm. I know I think Italy were involved in bits of it uh, and so on, for example. Um, uh, uh, they decided to fire a spacecraft or fly a spacecraft into an asteroid. Um, uh, careless, deliberate, or a good thing to have done? What, what was the point of all this? Uh, all of the above, probably, to start <laughs> with. Um, but it's the first planetary defence test that humans have ever done. We've never smashed intentionally into anything, really, to try and shift it off its course. Um, so it's a really exciting way to see... Can we protect ourselves if something comes to the Earth in the future and threatens us with extinction like they did for the dinosaurs? The asteroid uh, Dimorphos, which uh, is the one that was crashed into by the uh, by the spacecraft, um, was actually one of two asteroids going around each other. And that will, the, the significance of them being a binary asteroid will come on to uh, later. But Dimorphos uh, is about 170 metres across, right? So it's not... Uh, it, it's reasonable size for an asteroid it's not a tiny little thing it would it would make a bang if it hit the earth right we'd certainly notice something like that yeah you wouldn't want it on your foot basically yeah um but it's yeah it's a small start for anything it's some it's small compared with what we could be threatened with in the future um but obviously baby steps we've got to go through the procedures figuring out if this is possible let alone can we save people and saving people is the important thing, right? The, the, we've been hit, or the Earth has been hit by asteroids uh, of this size and smaller and indeed significantly larger over the past millions of years. The famous one being, of course, 65 million years ago, uh, the Chicksha Club, uh, um, if I've said that correctly, I can never remember. Um, Paul will correct me. Well, how do you say it again? Chicksha Loop. There we go. Uh, impact uh, 65 million years ago, which which killed off the dinosaurs or led to the extinction uh, of the dinosaurs and quite a lot of other life uh, on Earth, in fairness. Now, that was a much, much larger asteroid. That was kilometres uh, across. This one's just a, 100 metres or so across. Um, but there's quite a lot of this kind of thing out there, and they do cross the Earth's path. These asteroids here are near-Earth asteroids. What does a near-Earth asteroid mean? So it's anything that approaches Earth within three million kilometres. Um, and these have the potential of disrupting and hurting life. Um, but everyone we've discovered up to now passes the Earth safely. Nothing to worry about. But it's often we don't discover them until, you know, 
we don't discover them hundreds of years, thousands of years in advance. We'll know maybe some years, maybe decades, maybe a hundred years. Um, so we need to be on the ball with tracking these to make sure that there isn't anything that will hurt us. And this is part of the, one of the reasons for, for this test was because if we discover something that's coming flying towards the Earth, uh, or that's, that's orbiting the sun rather, and is going to impact the Earth in, as you say, a decade, a hundred years' time, something like that, or even a, a few months' time, you know, <laughs> if, if, if we're very unlucky. Um, I guess the question is, um, what do we do about it? And there, there are all sorts of techniques out there, but there's, this is, we can come on to the other techniques later, but this was specifically about, um, uh, yeah, firing a spacecraft into it. What, what's the point of firing a spacecraft into these things? What good can that possibly do? So in space, just to knock something out, we don't really need a lot of force. We can just nudge it years before it's meant to hit the Earth. So then it passes us that's safely in front of or behind it, our orbit. So if we can do that instead of like they did in Deep Impact or Armageddon, where they just fired a nuke at it, that's much easier. You know, nukes are going to be messy, dangerous. It's a nuke. <laughs> so if we can just nudge it with a little satellite, that's a lot safer, a lot more reliable, because we can better predict where it's going to go. And from DART, we've hopefully learned quite a bit. So then for anything mm. bigger that approaches the Earth, we can better know how to deal with that. And so the idea is you, you give it a nudge a long time before it's going to hit the Earth so that over time its orbit has just shifted enough so that in 10 years' time or 20 years' time when it would have hit the Earth, it now just misses the Earth Yeah, uh, just yeah. in case. Uh, now, that's all well and good. Uh, when we try and observe these uh, asteroids, though, we don't see something like you see in the movies of this you know, images of enormous rocks uh, hurtling through space. You see a pinprick on an astronomical image, essentially. And Helen, you've been working... Uh, uh, with uh, a range of people to observe these things. Um, I guess, first of all, what w when you observe asteroids and, and plan their motion, how do we, how do we know where it's, where it's going? How, what do the observations tell us? Okay, when, when we're looking at uh, these pinpoints in space, the first thing that you notice if you do some imaging is that they move. Most of the things that we look at in space, uh, if you see uh, a, a, an image taken, they will be fixed points in space. Um, for on the timescales that we're looking at anyway. So you have lots and lots of reference stars that if you take multiple images, then uh, as you look at each one next to each other, you'll see that some things move within those frames. Um, and those are asteroids or, 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 or comets, or more recently, unfortunately, satellites as well. But the things that we're interested in are these, uh, these asteroids. And so what we do is we take lots of measurements over long periods of time, we use the reference stars that sit behind them so we can pinpoint the way that those orbits um, are tracking through space. So the more points that we get, the more accurately that we can actually plot the path through space. Um, and so if you take even a couple of, uh, uh, of images, um, if you use the, the, the special software that uses those reference stars, you can, we can pinpoint its position. We can build those into the equations of motion and when we can uh, track the, uh, the path of asteroids. And so um, while some people will take lots and lots of images um, with some of the ones that we're doing, small numbers, but added to a bigger data set, 
and the, the, the more data you get, the more accurate that uh, you're likely to be. So we can monitor it over, over time. Now, most asteroids are actually fairly uh, well defined in, in their path. Um, if you're looking at comets and that sometimes is a, is a bit trickier because um, with very elliptical orbit it, orbits they can come near to um, some of the, the major planets and, and their orbits can get, get shifted as well. Um, but for asteroids, pretty well defined as long as we take uh, lots of, uh, of measurements of them. So that's one of the things that, that we're looking for is positional stuff. Um, the other things that we look at is how bright they are. So how do they change uh, uh, with, with brightness over time? Some of that is to do with how close they are to the sun. Other things is about um, their albedo, so how much light they reflect, which can be dependent on their shape. So by looking at, uh, at images over time again, we can start to pick up perhaps some rotational features as the light changes, as they show different faces to us. And that's because we're seeing a different as aspect ratio, essentially, of the, of the asteroid, a different amount of surface that's reflecting the sunlight as, as, as it rotates and spins around. Uh, now, now, Paul, this is, a, this is a binary asteroid, and there's, there's two of them. So Dimorphos is the one that was crashed into, but it's the, it's the little brother or the little sibling of uh, Didymos, I think, is the larger one. What's the importance, what's, what's the significance of this mission being done on a binary asteroid? So the nice thing about this particular binary system is that, it, that we see eclipses. So we see the asteroids pass one in front of the other as they orbit around. And they do that in about a 12-hour period uh, initially. And the thinking was that if you can observe this system pre-impact, so as it's orbiting around normally, and then post-impact, so after the, the DART mission has actually collided, you're looking for a change. You're looking to see, basically, have you shoved Dimorphos a little bit closer to Didymos? That, that was the overall goal. Um, and the observations show now, and these are the initial observations that were done in the, in the weeks subsequent to the impact, that the, um, the orbital period, if you like, has changed from 11 hours and 55 minutes before to 11 hours and 23 minutes afterwards. So they, they've really given it a, a, a smack. They, they've hit it much harder, or at least they've affected the orbit much more than they initially thought they were going to do. The point here is they know exactly the energy they hit it with. They know the mass of, of, uh, of DART. They know the velocity it was travelling and in the velocity of the object it was hitting. So all of the energies are well known. What we need to do now is to figure out how that energy and that momentum was transferred from the DART satellite, the, the spacecraft itself, into, uh, into Dimorphos, into the small target object. And that's because if, if this was a solid object, if this was basically like a, you know, a rock you picked up from a mountainside and put into space and you smacked something into it, that might be, that might be straightforward. But asteroids are often rubble piles. They're, they're actually... Uh, a collection of smaller boulders like mushed together and held together by gravity and so when you smash into it it's almost like hitting a, a lump of play-doh where it actually might just deform slightly and that changes how much energy you give to its orbit I guess it's a complicated problem absolutely and, and I think the, the the key here is that there's a follow-up mission that's coming back uh, in a few years time so an ESA mission that will go back to this system here uh, that will follow up and observe the, the hole, effectively, that's being punched into, uh, into Dimorphos. So that will give us a lot more information. But for now, they can crunch the numbers and figure out how much momentum was transferred. And as you say, that will give us some, some idea of how solid or how rubbly uh, Dimorphos actually was. Because we have some images, and the images that we've seen from the, uh, the spacecraft as it approached show a very rubbly surface. Uh, and as you mentioned, th th this object is probably a rubble pile all the way through. So you're not hitting a single solid lump of stone. You're hitting something which is a kind of a loosely held, I think mush was the, the word you used, very technical term, yeah. Yeah. Um, of, of rocks and, and dust effectively. So how do you push something that isn't solid? That's that's the key uh, outcome, I think, here. Mm. And, and I mean, uh, the scale of this also. So it's, it's made a, a roughly half hour period change, so half hour change to the period of this orbit over a, 
a twelve-hour period mm. originally. So that that's quite a that's like five percent. Yeah, yeah, four or five percent. So that's a, that's a pretty big uh, change in uh, in orbit. And considering Dimorphos, the the object is what one hundred and seventy meters across. It's the size of a, a large building, you know, an aircraft hangar mm. or something. Um, and the uh, the actual dart mass is. Um, we were saying it was what it's a couple of meters across or something, so, and it weighs half a ton or six hundred kilograms or something like that. And um, we were talking actually offline. So that's we'd say that's the size of a small car. I think in in the states it's the size of a medium a family fridge. Yeah, <laughs> something like that. But, but but something like that anyway. Now, Helen, we talked about the, the the observations here are measuring eclipses. So all we're doing is measuring one of the asteroids, or the, the reflected light changes. One asteroid passes in front of the other and blocks out some of the light. So we're not seeing these amazingly glorious pictures that, as I say, you see in the movies. You're seeing this pinprick of light get brighter and fainter. But in principle, that observation is is pretty straightforward, and that's one of the the joys of of these kind of observations that you don't need amazing. Uh, you know, the the most powerful telescopes on the planet to do this. You need something that can measure the brightness of a point of light, and that there is is one of the joys of what what you've been doing is working with schools and what the project has been doing, uh, Kai as well, of working with with schools uh, across Wales. So school kids are doing this, aren't they? Who who have you been working with to make these observations? Okay, we've been helping NASA. Uh, yeah. Our strapline on this has been: Would you like to help NASA save the planet? Um, and fairly unsurprisingly, quite a lot of schools have been quite excited about yeah. this. And I must admit, I think those of us in the team have been quite excited about getting involved with doing this as well. Um, what we have is that we are part of the Forbes Telescope Project and we have access to the Las Cambrus uh, Observatory Network. Now, that network is actually part of the official NASA network for measuring the, uh, the dot impact. So we, we've been using one meter telescopes and two meter telescopes and getting, uh, in, for my side of it, um, three particular primary schools, uh, St. Mary's in Bridgend, uh, White Rose uh, in Newtonega and Montgomery School in Montgomery, where the, the children from their classroom have been setting up observations with one meter and two meter telescopes um, to look at what happens uh, before, so measuring just the points of light, and then post-impact, looking at uh, of what has changed. So we've actually been looking at two things. One, the brightness, so we can pick up the uh, the changes in in the orbital period, the change in the light curve dips. Um, but one thing that perhaps the scientists are telling us they were a little bit surprised about was how much material came off the, the asteroid after the impact. And so while our project is called Comet Chasers, um, and this is an asteroid, at the moment our asteroid is pretending that it's a comet because it has quite a long tail behind it. And our observations are adding something to that data set because um, the plans were set up looking for the brightness, the photometry changes, so short exposures, whereas we've been bringing extra telescope time looking at longer exposures to try and pick up some detail in the tail uh, of, the, of the asteroid. And we've been doing that, and the schools have been doing it over the last month. And we've been doing little animations with them so they could see how it's moving through space and, and, and how things are changing. And they're getting quite excited about it. And, and the, main, the other thing about this being a, a, a global network of telescopes is that there's, there's always a telescope that's in the dark somewhere. I think that the last cameras observed your strapline used to be keeping you in the dark because somewhere around the world, one of the telescopes is, is at night time and can observe these things. Uh, and, and Kai, I know you, you went to the Ice Deadford uh, Festival here in Wales that was over the summer and members of the public essentially were 
getting involved in this as well. So what was that like to get members of the public helping NASA, as you say? Yeah, um, unsurprisingly, it was the most popular. We had four different missions the kids could choose from, and the NASA one obviously was the bestseller. Uh, we had to take it down because we were just getting too many. <laughs> um, but yeah, kids would come up, we'd talk about comets a little bit, and they'd be really interested in holding meteorites. But then, you know, asking, well, do you want to take pictures of comets? Obviously, it's going to be yes. And so it's, you know, it's explaining the process, how telescopes work and how we take images and how their data is going to be actually used. It's not just a picture they're going to be able to see online. That picture is going to be used to conduct proper research and, you know, as Helen was saying, to save the planet, the NASA. So certainly a laudable aim and something yeah. I, I, I'm sure they, they enjoy. And actually, Helen, you were mentioning that these the schools have got involved and they've been really enjoying it. You're working uh, with, with, these are primary school children, uh, and we've actually got some recording of uh, year three and year four, uh, a few people from year three and year four at Montgomery School who sent us uh, their thoughts on their involvement with this project. It's been really exciting working with the Comet Chaser project. We've taken images of galaxies, comets and even an asteroid before it's hit by a spacecraft. Yes, it's been amazing because we also took images of the asteroid after it was hit by NASA's spacecraft and we could see its tail in one of the images we took. It's been great that we can take images using telescopes from around the world. And people are using our images we've taken in the DART mission to study the asteroid. I mean, they clearly enjoy this. As you say, the strapline is helping NASA. And while a lot of the time you get some of these school projects, schools projects, which are, you know, you're helping NASA, but actually it doesn't, you know, are you really? This really is going into the, you know, the, the uh, accumulation of data on the, you know, to, to study this object. This just really, these observations really are part of the study. You know? Yeah, and, and I think, you know, that's what we've been trying to do with the whole Comet Chaser project is that we're not just getting children to make observations for, for the sake of making observations. We're trying to make sure that what they're doing is actually linking into real research. Um, and we're really hoping that um, over the next couple of months when the uh, the DART mission paper research papers start uh, hitting the streets, that our data will be in there and our schools will be credited um, as, as part of those research papers. We've already got uh, two research papers over, over the last year where schools' names are, are there for collecting data for, for the scientists. So, so yes, real data, real science, um, and part of a, a worldwide network, um, which is great in uh, seeing the, the, the children linking in with, with the different people in, in, in parts of the world. It's a really powerful thing for them to have done, I guess, is to engage with science at, at, this, at this level. The other thing that we, we wanted to do with the DART mission was go in beforehand so that um, they could make the, the pre-impact observations. But even more than that, for me, was being able to uh, get children that when they're seeing it on the news, being able to say, I'm part of that. I'm part of the mission. Um, when we, uh, and I'm going to be carrying on being part of the mission over the, uh, the, the coming months as we collect more data. Yeah, to, I guess to be able to go and say, Mum, Dad, that was I was doing that. Or, you know, nanny and Granddad, uh, you know, or telling your whole family that you've been you've been involved in that it must be all um, so amazing for a seven, eight year old to, to be able to do. Um, nine, nine, ten, eleven years old. Okay, so a, a range yeah, of yeah, most of the we're working on two groups of year six, and then the, that one mixed mixed class okay. of years three, four. Excellent, uh, but uh, still still remarkable. Uh, now the the Comet Chasers mission that we've talked about uh, as so DART was impacting an asteroid, Dimorphos is an asteroid, albeit one that's uh, got a bit of a comet's tail at the moment. It's got its fancy dress uh, outfit on, very topical, I guess, uh, as we record this at least. Um, 
the, now, uh, Kai, the Comet Chaser's mission is to look at, uh, at comets, um, primarily. The clue, the clue, I guess, is in the name. Um, what, what's, the, what's the deal with Comet Chasers? What's the point of Comet Chasers? What's his aims? Uh, so we want to get kids involved with real science. They're actively doing things to progress the science. Um, and that's a, I think it's a great way to get kids motivated and interested in science more. Um, kids that might not consider or think they like science because of the general stigma around mm. around it. Um, so it opens the doors for them to realize, okay, this is pretty cool. This is, you know, this is a realistic career path for me that I can go down. Because even growing up, I didn't realize really the extent that physics and astronomy could get me into. It was more, oh, I like space. So that was lucky for me that I kind of fell into it. But a lot of kids will need that just sort of nudge to be like, yeah, you can do this. If you like this, go for it completely. So it's getting the fun aspect into astronomy more. And you're uniquely placed, or not uniquely, you're, you're, you're in a, a relatively unusual position in astronomy circles because you speak Welsh, you're a Welsh yeah. speaker, and so you can do this with Welsh schools as well, um, yeah. or Welsh, Welsh medium schools, which, I mean, there aren't that many resources out there at this level, at this level of depth, that, you know, are Welsh language that, that Welsh medium schools can engage with. Yeah, so I grew up in a massively rural area on Anglesey, and um, we had nothing like this. I, th- I think we get very often anyone we tell about this project they said oh wish we had this as a kid you know i'm young and we didn't have this even um so another thing is that welsh language welsh schools welsh schools in generally are performing worse than english schools but then welsh language schools are performing worse than welsh performing worse than english language schools in wales despite generally welsh language students coming from more affluent backgrounds so why is there that discrepancy in abilities, especially in STEM? We hope that Comet Chasers gives them the interest to carry on with it, because that might be the issue, just Welsh kids aren't as interested in space, um, but also give them the, the opportunity to do stuff in their native tongue so that they can learn about things and get exposed to stuff that they won't generally be exposed to. And it makes it relative to them. I mean, there's a concept we talk about in science, sort of engagement and education and circles, a lot of science capital, making it relevant to people, giving them exposure. And if, if everything they do is done in a different language than they're used to doing, that's that creates a degree of separation. And doing it in, as you say, their native tongue is, is something that is, is going to be uh, more relevant to them and, and really bring it home as this is for, you know, anyone can do this. Yeah. yeah. So you've got schools engaged with comets. They're observing comets. Uh, Helen, you're involved with the the, the comets as well. Are, you, are, you, are these schools that have been observing darts, the, the dart mission? Are they also doing comet missions, or is that a broader range of schools? Yeah, no, we've we've uh, over the last couple of years we've worked with some some extra schools as well. So um, did some work with uh, Anisolian Primary um, in a, another um, deprived valley area um, and Brecon as well. And those schools were working on. Um, a couple of comets that were, again, a bit uh, unusual. Uh, the one started life as an asteroid, but uh, uh, got a tail, so got uh, renamed as a, 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 as a comet, so an active asteroid. So basically, you've got a, a comet in the asteroid belt, so they've been making observations of that, so again, we can characterise it. Um, there's a big comet uh, called UN271, um, which was um, potentially 60 to 100 kilometres big, which is really big. It's coming our way. It's going to take another 10 years uh, to get closest to us. Um, but that's another unusual object as well. So 
uh, again our schools making observations of that feeding into researchers um, in the University of Maryland in this, this case um, to see how as it gets closer we learn more and more about it whether it really is that big or what it's made of and uh, why it's a bit different it's a it's an old cloud comet so uh, unusual one as well. So it's com coming in for the first time. Coming in for um, the first time, we think, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and Paul, some of these questions that we've raised, that, you know, asteroids turning into comets or comets turning into asteroids, which sometimes happens, is that they go dormant, I guess. Uh, or, or just, you know, comets coming in for the first time. These are real research areas. This is not stuff that, you know, stu school students are doing because it's, you know, a, a, it's something they can do. It's something that astronomers worldwide are looking at you know, with genuine research questions about this. Absolutely, and, and something we should mention is that both Helen and Kai are doing PhDs that are not just based around the educational programme, the Comet Chasers programme we talked about, but they're kind of a, a unique blend of, of real science, so the Comet science, the Comet research, but also pedagogy, so looking at how these children are learning and gaining science skills and experiences. And we talk about science capital uh, you know, as being something that these, these children are going to pick up. So their PhDs will combine data that has been taken by these children so it's effectively it's in their best interest to get as many schools as possible gathering data because like all scientists the more data you've got the more you can do with it so the more schools they can persuade to take observations of comets and asteroids the more data they have for the the, the real sciencey bits of their phds and in my case i'm working on uh, comet 67p which, which is the rosetta mission so i've got an, uh, an added advantage in that uh, i can talk to uh, to children about being on the Rosetta mission, as well as being on the DARF mission, so again, part of a, a, a bigger research project, and 67P has just been around for, for the second time, so the first time after the Rosetta mission, so we've now got two data sets to look at, oh, that I need to analyse as part of my PhD, so including yeah. schools data. Excellent. And so I, I guess finally, if schools are listening to this, uh, schools in Wales, and they want to get involved with Comet Chasers, um, where, where do they go, who do they speak to, what do they do? We have a website. Excellent. <laughs> it's called cometchasers.org. Excellent. So uh, have a look on there. There's some contact details um, on our website as well. We've got some of the, um, the resources as well that schools can use, so including some things that you could try at home. So if you want to make um, something that looks like uh, Comet 67P out of Rice Krispie Cakes, it's on the website. Give it a go and test the science about how robust it is after you've chilled it by eating it. Excellent. <laughs> and, and is this open to, to schools outside? I mean, your project's focused on Wales at the moment. Is that, is that Yeah, is right? I mean, the resources are available to anybody. Right. Uh, and the hope is that in future, obviously, we'll be, we'll be working with uh, European countries in particular and, and partners within the, in the Rosetta mission. And so the resources will be translated into European languages. Uh, and so we'll be available to anybody. But at the moment, the focus for us really is, is on the schools in Wales, so the local schools that we can work with from the, from the research point of view. Excellent. So if you're uh, involved with a school in Wales or you're a parent of a child in the school in Wales and get the ear of one of their teachers, that's cometchasers.org. Go and point them in that direction and see if they want to get uh, involved. I'm sure Kai, Helen and Paul would uh, love to see your interest and involvement uh, with the programme. That's it for this month. My thanks to Kai, Helen and Paul for talking about the Comet Chasers mission and that DART mission uh, to impact Dimorphos. Don't forget, you can find past episodes of the podcast at pythagastro.uk, where you can also subscribe to the podcast, or just search for us on Spotify. Look for Pythagorean Astronomy. Until next month, goodbye. <laughs>
You've been listening to Pythagorean Astronomy, an extended version of this month's Astronomy Roundup from Pythagoras' Trousers, a weekly science and technology radio show presented by me, Rhys Phillips. You can catch up on full episodes of Pythagoras' Trousers, subscribe to our podcast and get in touch by going to www.pythagoras-trousers.radio.fm. Thank you.